On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we're talking to Matthew Davidow and Ed Miller, authors of a tremendous new book on sports betting called The Logic of Sports Betting, available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. So you should run out and get it. It's a fascinating take on how to basically beat sports betting from as from an approach standpoint and talks a lot about how the books makers make the line so you can understand where value can come from in trying to beat them. And then Rufus and I do a little bit of a debrief on that interview and a little bit of a debrief on his PGA championship success or lack thereof. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is. We'd like to welcome uh, Matt Davidow and Ed Miller to the podcast. Matt and Ed recently co-authored a book called The Logic of Sports Betting, which is really a fantastic read. It goes through the thought process required to win at sports betting and provides a deeper understanding of the sports betting ecosystem. I honestly think it's required reading for anyone, especially like in the sports industry, but especially covering the sports betting industry, because it really is a thinking man's book. It asks the questions of why. Why do markets work the way they do? Why are some markets more efficient than others? And it really touches on, on the concept of price discovery, which I think is absolutely critical to understanding it. I don't think it's going to make anybody a winning better on its own, but if someone is motivated to work hard, it'll definitely give betters a, a good idea of, of sort of where to look for edges and sort of the kind of thought process required to be a winning better. So uh, without further ado, welcome, Matt and Ed. Hi, thank you for having us on. Yeah, Lucas. thanks. Thanks. Can you guys tell us a little bit about just your background and, and the general, I mean, obviously after reading this book, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have a long, really eloquent soliloquy like Rufus did, but it was a really, really good book. And I think it's the best book on sports betting that, I, that I've ever read. And I, I actually disagree with Rufus. I think reading this book alone will make you a better sports better and potentially a winning sports better, because I do think that the approaches that you coin in here are, are, are very sound. And, and even just like, I think in a, from an approach standpoint, like I, I recognize a lot of winning sports better approaches that I've never fully understood what they were doing or what they were thinking about people that I know that will tell me that they're on a game or, or they're on a prop or something like that. And they're definitely using a lot of the same methodologies that you're using. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of your general credentials for writing this book? Which, what, what are you both of your backgrounds? We obviously both have a you know, gambling background. We started with poker and, uh, you know, I've done a lot of sports stuff. In the last four years, we've been working on an in-running modeling uh, company together basically since the yeah i i mean i started with poker i don't know 16 years ago 17 years ago i was a originally went to school as a software developer and then got into poker and then got into writing books about poker just because i didn't like playing the long hours you know to just play for a living and uh i actually got into sports with uh, dfs about four years ago personally so i uh you know once the, the the sort of marketing machine got behind DraftKings and FanDuel, I could tell that there was a gambling opportunity there and just kind of jumped into it. And that's how I reconnected with Matt. We just kind of just randomly, he was kind of playing the same strategy on the DraftKings baseball that I was. And uh, yeah, we got connected that way. And we've been doing the sports stuff 
for about four years. So what, what made you guys want to write this book? I mean, I think that, you know, any, any successful sports writer is going to read this and be like, why are they giving away all these secrets? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that the, this industry is really just getting started. The, particularly when it comes to U.S. sports, in the U.S., it's been underground, un, unregulated, often termed elite, illegal in many ways. And in a lot of ways, there really isn't a market for U.S. sports. And, you know, now there is. We're obviously involved in it, and, you know, with, with our uh, in-running product. And we're looking to educate people and grow the market. Same, same reason that poker books grow the poker industry. Books about sports betting will grow the sports betting industry. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, I have to say, I mean, I wrote my last book four years ago, three years ago, and I was a little bit jones into writing the book just because I, I kind of wrote a book a year for a long time. But, yeah, I mean, definitely my perception is that is that is that where we're at now, we could benefit a little bit more from – everyone understanding how things work a little bit better. You know what I mean? We're, we're, we're hoping in an ideal world, you know, the book has a little bit of an influence on how the U.S. Uh, sports betting industry develops. You know, I, I think we all kind of feel like we're at this crossroads a little bit. There's some influences that I think none of us like where, let's call it, you know, predatory a little bit or, you know, just where, where sports betting is a thing that they just try to get people's money as fast as possible and then it's over, you know, or there's sports betting as, you know, as engagement, as entertainment, as something that's sustainable for kind of the longer term. And, and we really would like to kind of, if possible, push the needle in, in the second direction. And I think that in many industries, education is a very good thing. If you look at sports betting or any gambling from a scenario of, okay, how do I take somebody else's money? Well, in, in, that, in that scope, you certainly want everyone with the least information possible and you to keep all the information. However, the way that we see the sports betting industry and many other industries in forms of even gambling is that the money isn't really in taking the other person's money. It's in everybody getting more interested and becoming more of a sports fan. And at the end of the day, in my opinion, the money's in, in, in the clicks. The money's in the engagement in the sports. And I think at that point, we, we all benefit much more than we do, whether it's an operator or a better from, you know, from trying to take a recreational gambler's, you know, recreational dollar. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's like the whole rising tide floats all boats kind of thing. And, and I, to be honest, it's really if the regulators and the, the operators in the U.S. had that same attitude in the leagues – where they basically are just trying to grow the industry because eventually once that industry's grown, there's going to be lots of, lots of, you know, lots of opportunities versus like being very, like you, you're looking at this in the long game kind of thing. Um, and I think that's the right way to look at it. Well, for sure. I mean, to put another way, I mean, especially in the, the way this sports gambling works in the U S now, there's only so much money to be made betting. I mean, it's only legal in a handful of states. And I mean, certainly the, the, the money that we've put into our models, the, the investment that we've made both in time and money is certainly going for a, a much higher bar than, you know, how do I get the best price on the NBA game tonight? Yeah, that makes sense. 
So describe a little bit about the, the type of person you want to read this book and sort of what you want to, what you want them to get from it. Um, so, so I think the book is, so it's, it's, it's not, so the, it's not a book about modeling. That's the first point to make. So we tried that last year. We realized six yeah, people would read it. We, we, we wrote about a third of a book about modeling and then decided it was too dry. You weren't so, trying to write a, a Stanford Wong book, huh? So it's, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit funny. I mean, a little bit. And it, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's meant to be kind of a, an easier read. So it's meant for people who are interested in sports betting uh, and who want to learn more about how the industry works, want to learn a little bit more about, you know, where lines come from, want to learn a little bit more about, you know, how in-play betting works, how, how do those lines appear on your app? Um, you know, every, every two seconds, the thing flashes and the lines change. How does that happen? You know, what's, what's behind that curtain? Um, and so to me, those people are betters, people who want to bet. Those are also people who work in the industry. You know, um, those are definitely, you know, sports media people. You know, this is going to be a big thing for sports media, uh, coming up in the next few years. And I think a lot of those folks, um, you know, they, they, they see it from the better side, but they don't you know, kind of know, you know, how the markets work and, and, and where all the lines come from and everything. Uh, so, so that's kind of who we had in mind when we wrote the book. I think everybody can get something from this book. It has an absolutely amazing ability to take a complicated concept and explain it in a way that anyone can understand. Furthermore, the, the, his, his conversational writing style, like uh, Jeff, I think you, you said you read the book in a very short amount of time, despite it being 237 pages, having I'm also tons. I'm also a genius, so that's well, that's <laughs> and like I think that somebody who doesn't know like how the odds work or what a line is can will, will be interested in the book, will will read it and enjoy it and learn from it, and I think that even somebody at the the very peak and the very expert of this. Uh, Field like Rufus, I think could get something from the book. I mean, I've been making people laugh by saying when, when I read the book after it was finished, I learned something from my own book. People were like, "Well, how is that possible?" Well, the the concepts were explained, and it's like you remind yourself of how important yeah. some of them. It kind of just reminds you of best practices, you know, and, and kind of gets you off some of the dumb shit. <laughs> yeah. I have to say the Black Friday metaphor, like that explanation for price discovery was, was incredible. And, and I'm actually going to send a copy of the book to my mom who actually listens to this podcast and, and doesn't really understand the sports betting world that much. But I honestly think a layman would understand the sports betting world after reading this book. So why don't, why don't we tell people a little bit about the Black Friday concept just so they understand it. Like we're, we're kind of talking very abstractly about the book, but it'd be good to dive into to some of the things on it. Yeah, sure. So that analogy, that, that analogy just hit me. So it's about, it's about openers, right? And it's, and you know, so on Black Friday, you know, we all have that picture of the video from Walmart and there's the 8 million people sitting outside the, the store at 6am and then they open the doors and everyone rushes in and tramples each other, you know, and, 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 and the narrative on the news is always like, you know, look at this consumer culture and how horrible these people are and how did we get to this point? But, you know, and I was like, well, wait a second. I mean, these people are there for a reason. They're there because you could buy a TV for $99. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a real value for people. And that's why they're there. I mean, they're not there just because they're, 
you know. The people that stand in line and they're ready with their ad. Right. On Friday morning, they get the right. $1,000 TV and, for $100. Yeah, and there's, and there's not $1,000 TVs for $100. There's, you know, 30 of them. You know, and once they're gone, they're gone. And, and, and so the analogy was that that's a lot like how openers work. And so when, when you know, a market-making book is going to open a market, you know, they do so at a, a certain time. And, and there are the people that sit there and wait for the openers. And they are going to try to click on those openers the moment those things list, you know, trying to find value in, in whatever gets posted. Yeah, and I, th- I think that was a good analogy in terms of the idea of of sort of the worthwhileness of getting to those you know to the to to those lines um, early on when there is clear value. Do you think the analogies there went that there is always the most value on those openers? I mean, like on the Black Friday analogy, it's pretty easy to see that there's value because the prices are going to go up. In this case, you're talking about a two sided market. Um, but you think that it's 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 similarly that clear? Well, the more time that goes on, the more information goes into the market. The the, the more sharp betters bet, the more uh, sharp sportsbook employees see the information. The, the the more their player profiling software is able to to uh, use that information and put it into the market. The you know time is time is information. The the number that you know one person decides to you know stick up with little information is inherently going to be much weaker than the number that happens that that occurs after everybody's had their say in the, the information. Yeah. Right. Like, like it's, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly one of the easiest ways to get that. Right. So it's, 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 it's not the most lucrative potentially, but you have to work harder to get more value out later on in the market. Right. You, if you, if you bet openers, you can do something, have like a market implied type model that just kind of, prices the openers really better than the whoever's you know on the sportsbook side pricing the openers and then you just you just pick off the mistakes so there's just you know literally mistakes and you're just you know so so it's kind of like easier money on the openers versus you know you have to work harder if you want to bet later well, yeah i mean just, that it, it just goes to show why it's it's easier to make money betting on sports if you have a smaller bankroll because there's so many more opportunities out there um, in these markets that haven't had the price discovery yet with openers. But you guys talk a lot about, um, about market making books and price and this concept of price discovery in the book, but with fewer and fewer market making books out there, um, what do you think about the whole market manipulation going on? The fact that someone can bet into these market making books and then bet in these paper heads and off screen accounts and, and get down a lot more. And, and, and in that case, the price discovery has been, it has occurred with, a sort of a, a small percentage of the money that's actually been bet in the market. And, and so you do have a, a number that, you know, obviously it's only for a short time, but, but does get out of whack. I mean, for sure. And I mean, we, we, we even, I think you'll mention that in the, in the book and that the I mean, game integrity for one, the entire industry should want a real robust, high volume, low hold market. And for sure, I mean, especially we see, see things like the volume taxes that are getting added here and there, the, the requirement for official league data, which is in many ways another tax, and that will make it harder and harder for operators to compete on price. And when operators can't compete on price, the market is 
not robust and certainly ripe for you know ripe for manipulation. Yeah, I think I mean this is this is actually one of the points we really wanted to kind of bring to people's attention when we wrote the book is is how fragile the system really is the way it currently works. You know, there's the market making is a core part of sports betting, you know, and someone has to do the market making. Yes, people can copy, you know, here and there you can, you know, and, and that's okay as long as someone's doing the hard work of the market making and as long as the the, the volume of the market maker is a reasonable size compared to, you know, the volume of the rest of, of the copying or, or the, you know, the market that kind of pegs to the market maker, right? Do you, you know, do I mean, you think it, that's it, the case right now in, in U.S. sports at least? I when... think it's fragile. No, I think it's fragile. And I, I think it's set up to become even more fragile if, you know, we get 30 states come online in the next two years and no one, no one addresses this problem. Well, currently, the, I mean, the, the way I look at the U.S. sports industry, the sports betting industry, is right now it's what New Jersey, Nevada, Delaware, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Rhode Pennsylvania, Island, Pennsylvania, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, Mobile, yeah. uh, you know, various various tribal casinos, and I don't think any of those operators are, are, are making the market. So right now, all of these, all of the the, the lines and the odds that they're that they're getting are, you know, they're somewhat copying each other. I think. And everybody's doing a little bit of market making, but not too much. And I do, I do wonder what happens if, if a true onshore market maker doesn't doesn't appear within a couple of years. I, I mean, what you end up with is the European industry. Really, I mean, they don't have a market maker for most of the. Well, they, I mean, they, they also have. I mean, they have they have anchored to 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 market. I mean, they, it's soccer, and it's there's more international interest. There's, they can kind of anchor to markets in Asia too, I think, and and whereas for U.S. sports, that, that this doesn't exist, really. Well, so, so what is what's the what's the problem with that? Is the problem with that that these books all become retail books and don't allow any real action that is sharp action, and therefore the market never grows at the rate that we want because it's all sort of recreational action. Is is that the is that the I don't think so. I think what we actually see, if, if, if we fast forward ahead five years, and let's say that a lot of states implement extra volume taxes, let's say that, that the actual market making operator doesn't step forward. What I think we see is obviously a lot of what we in the book call, you know, we call the book retailers in many states. And then we see companies that are set up in the U.S., to take good information on the on the sports and the odds, and then bet them into the retailers. So, I mean, there, there's a a number of these businesses that currently exist in Europe, to where you know whether it's horse racing, uh, soccer, uh, cricket, tennis, where they bet into the retailers. So, let let's say I'm a really really smart cricket handicapper. Well, rather than play into the the whatever market makers there are in Europe and move the market. I can work with one of these betting houses who will bet my cricket match in such a way where the market won't really move. They'll bet, you know, literally a hundred dollars here and a hundred dollars there until it really adds up. And we'll, we'll see that type of thing in the U S at some point. If, uh, if the market isn't allowed to grow in a regulated 
uh, yeah, and it, in my opinion, what that's going to do, I mean, obviously that kind of stuff is going to is going to um, cut into retailers' margins. You're going to have the retailers, you know, you're going to have the whoever's you know got the most market share will probably be fine. But whoever's sitting there, I'm talking operators now. Whoever's you know operator number six or operator number twelve in a market is, I mean, they're they're not going to make any money. They're they're going to make no money. They're probably going to go out of business. And then you're going to have states. The states are going to say, I thought we were going to get more tax revenue. from this." You know, they, they, that's kind of what I see. But that, that's essentially what I'm saying, right? Where you, yeah. the, people, the people that thought there was going to be a ton of money here because there was going to be a ton of money wagered are not going to see that because the operators are not able to allow that many people to wager because they haven't built a real business that exactly. allows it's, it's going to be, a, it, there's, a, there's a hollow infrastructure underneath it and that's going to cause... Basically, every operator is going to have to deal everything defensively and going to be erring on the side of not taking action, have huge holds, burn people out. It, it all points to the same thing, which is less sustainability, less action over time, and ultimately, you know, a disappointing outcome, I think. For people. But that's where so. you guys swoop in and you propose this way to run a book that will help the whole United States ecosystem grow. And you get to be the back end of every single sports book in the United States. That right. I mean, I, I, I think what needs to happen is I think, I think a few states really need to uh, take the lead on this. They want to say, you know what, we want, to, we want that in our state. We want that headquartered in our state. We're going to make our regulations friendly toward that in our state. And it doesn't have to be every state. I mean, if you're, you know, a small state, you can have your 50% tax and you can have your you know, your royalty fees or whatever you want, it's not going to matter because if you're a small state, but you need, we need, we need a, a critical mass, especially of the larger states to understand that this is a critical need and that the industry is not going to thrive without it. And also that having, having that infrastructure headquartered in your state, you know, has advantages versus having it in, in someone else's state. So Ed, just for, for the listeners out there that maybe don't understand the tax policies that well, why, why are tax policies standing in the way of having market maker books? So the, the, this is why, the, why volume taxes are bad. So a lot of people look at it and they say, well, wait a second. If I have, say, minus 110, it's like a 5% standard hold, and I, I, I charge, what is the math, 25%? Well, they, they're talking about, let, let, let's just say a 1% tax on volume. That's, that was proposed. A 1% tax on volume? That was, that so was you, you already have a quarter percent federal right. tax on volume. For every- there's, there's a quarter percent at the federal level that's already passed. So the problem with the volume tax is, as opposed to a revenue tax, it doesn't allow the operators to compete on price. If, if I'm being taxed on revenue, then if I decide to try for a model that has a high volume and low hold, let, let's say I shoot for, you know, a hundred million volume at 1% hold to make a million dollars in revenue. And there's a revenue tax of 25% will pay my 250,000 and I move on my way. Whereas if it's a volume tax, I need to set up my business model in such a way that guarantees that I make money because I've got to pay that volume tax even if I don't make any money. So I've got to set my hold so high to ensure that I don't end up losing money. I mean, if there's a 1% volume tax and I'm making 1%, then I'm not really making anything under the volume tax, you know, way. So as opposed to that, I've got to have a higher, I've got to have a higher hold, go for a lower volume. And at the end of the day, that's bad for the customer. That's bad for the market. That's 
bad for the states that are charging the tax. So book, so these offshore market-making books like Credit and Pinnacle, they don't have to deal with these volume taxes. Is that correct? I, I don't know too much <laughs> other than that if you're not regulated in the U.S. and you're not paying a tax, then you're not paying tax. So, so they're much more well-positioned to be able to be market-maker books. I, I mean, I think what's going to happen is, yeah, what, what's going to happen is if, if this need is not met, by someone in the U.S. stepping forward and saying, this is a need for the industry and we're going to meet it here by creating the environment for it to thrive, then, I mean, yeah, that's what's going to happen. And, and, and the reason that's bad, there's like a million reasons why that's not the best infrastructure for how to build this, the whole, you know, country's uh, regulated infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's likely what would happen. So how much are these non-market maker, these retail books in the U.S. right now actually balancing action if they're basically just copying the market maker books? They don't balance any action. All, look, at, right. look, at, look at what New Jersey had on the Super Bowl. And people make it out like, oh, oh that's just so it goes. We had a million dollars in the Super Bowl. Meanwhile, they didn't have to have a million dollars in the Super Bowl. They, they could have moved their line. They had a million dollars in the Super Bowl because they decided that the, the right line was either what they had up or a little bit lower allowed their customers to just pile on the Patriots and then bribe yeah, them lost. Right. What's, 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 what's wrong with that sort of more risk-loving behavior? Normally we get on books because they're too risk-averse. They won't take big enough bets. They were willing to take a big position because they thought, they, they thought that's where the numbers should be and they thought that the betters were getting the wrong side of it. Well, absolutely. It's in their right. And yeah, there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. I mean, I mean they, can, they can put their number wherever they want to. It's just, it's just, it's just, it, it's but you guys are saying you, what you're talking about is really not the end result of what happened it's really the process by how they got to that which was that they didn't have the sophistication to sort of move off numbers and understand how to move off numbers i, I don't think it's a lack of sophistication i think they understand exactly what they're trying to do i mean their 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 conception is well if we move this number people are going to bet it back the other you know it, it creates a scalp with the market makers and people are going to bet the scalp and we're losing EV to those guys, and, and they're right. I mean, <laughs> they're not wrong when they say that. I think they yeah, have but how do you know the EVs with they're losing EV with them, or they could be losing EV with the offshore book that or whoever they're arbing with? Right, but I mean, they 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 know. <laughs> I mean, they know what's up. They know that if they move too far off, you know, the market maker that that they're that they're taking action they don't want. It's it's but like what? the example of the the guy who buys and sells gold on the street corner in our book. If you if if I'm in the jewelry store and a guy walks in and says what's the price of gold? What do I do? I google what's the price of gold. I don't try to set that price myself. Right. If someone buys the gold and then the next person comes in, I don't move the price. I just google the price the next time someone comes in. Right. Yeah, and if you move and and if you move the price, you know, as a retailer, then you know, every time you move too far off the, the market making peg, then, then you get arbed. And they, I mean, the, the real point is that, is that, is that we have this sharp distinction between, you know, the books that the market making type books, the, the market number, quote unquote, and then, you know, everything else. And, and if there were more, you know, market making done, you know, if, if the other books were able to do more market making, you know, especially if, if they, they weren't taxed on volume, for instance, or, or, or and, and there's other reasons they don't do the more market making, then, then it wouldn't be such a sharp distinction between, you know, then what you said about, you know, who's to say which side is the right side 
would be way, you know, would have way more merit. Well, with the Super Bowl, though, I think you saw a lot more money being taken by these books in, in Nevada. I'm not sure about New Jersey, but definitely Nevada than these, the quote, market maker books out there. So I think that just because everybody basically said, oh, these market maker books must be correct. We're going to leave it here, even though we're getting absolutely punished with volume on the Patriots. When in reality, like maybe in a way, these Vegas books should have been the market maker books and should have moved on action because they were getting much more action than the market maker books, which the prices were supposedly based on. So let, let's, let's move away from the, the actual sports betting side or sort of sports, the Industry. business running a sports book and move more towards some of the concepts that we think can help sports bettors become better sports bettors. One of the things that I like that you guys talked a lot about is this concept of an angle. And as you talked about it before you even mentioned sort of the idea of a trend versus an angle, um, I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, how do we distinguish the difference between a trend and an angle? So can you guys describe to me the difference between a tr an angle and a trend? And then maybe give us a couple examples of angles that have made you guys a lot of money that you may or may not have mentioned in the book. Well, an, an angle is predictive. I mean, an, an angle is, is, is something that will be true in the in in the future, a trend is something that's tr true in the past. Right. But an angle could be true in the future and past. Well, for sure. But right. the, 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 the differentiating factor is whether it's true in the future. One, one, one in data, boy, it takes a lot of data to, to, especially when it comes to sports, something that should be logical. I remember, I don't know when was this about, almost 10 years ago, and a friend of mine who has made a fortune betting angles, <laughs> nothing but angles. And he determined, he looked at enough data and said, NBA dogs are now covering the first half way more than they should. And he determined, didn't cover the game, they only covered the first half. And he determined that the chances of this happening by randomness to be like a quarter of a percent. Now, of course, that assumes that there's, that, that there's no other information. Obviously there is other information. How often do they cover the games? How often do they cover the quarters? And upon looking deeper at this, me and a couple others were like, uh, no, good luck with that. You know, you just found your quarter percent. And he agreed and didn't really play it. We, we tracked it for, for uh, kicks and giggles. And it turned out, you know, quickly went back to, you know, 50%. And what do you know? He had found a, you know, basically a quarter, a quarter percent chance of randomness, according to math. Well, Forty percent. That's yeah. That so, so I think the test. I mean, the, the the trick with it is that there's no bright line difference between a trend and an angle. A trend is, you know, often you find angles by sort of. I mean, one way to find them is to kind of data mine for trends, and then when you think you found something, you know, you have to go the next step, and the next steps are a. You have to apply some logic. Is there logic to this? You know, is this. Did you find the example in the book that we give is something like, you know, teams from the SEC and non-conference games at 14 point favorites, blah, blah, you know, and that kind of trend, which is like, you know, which I call the Mad Libs <laughs> betting theory, which is, you know, where you just kind of jam a bunch of stuff together randomly that, you know, that won in the past. Is there logic to this? Is there some reason for why, you know, that this thing that you're seeing, why it might persist in the future? And then the second thing, and the thing that I think is, is really valuable is this concept of, does it glide? So if you feel like you found, you know, let's say, let's say a travel angle, you know, if a team's traveled 
3,000 miles before a game, then, you know, they, they, they do poorly in the first half. Well, you should still be able to see the effect, but maybe a little bit less so if there's less travel, but still some travel. So if it's, you know, 2,000 miles or if it's, you know, the game, there's a few more hours between the travel and the game time or whatever the angle is, you know, if, if you come off the constraints of the angle slowly, you should still see the effect, but you should see it fall off kind of logically rather than just disappear. So an angle is basically something you can actually build into a model and quantify, like travel distance. I mean, I think all models will include an angle that's real. And honestly, like from my my history and like my career, we write we write models, we write in-depth models. The people that I know that have made the most money betting sports, they find angles that are incredible, make tons of money on them. That's never that's that's never really been us. You know, we We've been basically working on our in-play models for the last four years. We have some some uh, pre-game, you know, dead ball models as well, but it's never the angles have actually never been a. I mean, a, a large so, part when, of well, so that's a really so that's a really really interesting point because Rufus is not an angles guy. Rufus is no. a model <laughs> right, and he um, believes that any angle, right, you can build into a model. It can be tested, vetted. It's just like a classic sort of analytics thing. You like have some hypothesis, you go and you test it. If it if it's you know significant, you put it in your model, et cetera. It gives you an advantage. I agree. The, the best angles overcome the models though. Well, so 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 one thing that's interesting, and there's another professional better than I know that's that that does quite well, and he's much more accepting of betting an angle without that sort of vetting or validation when maybe he just sees it in a small enough sample size that he believes that it's going to go and he goes and he runs with it. Now, oftentimes when he's betting these angles somewhat blindly, he's betting them smaller than he does some of his more vetted type of things, but he's still going out there and risking, you know, a percentage of his bankroll on this. In the book that you guys wrote, I do believe that that's one of the things you were saying that, that you got to play around with, which is like when you have an angle and you think there's some value there. And theoretically, if you get your hold percentage down, your hold down to closer to zero, you're able to then um, really test these things. Or, or even, even if you have just a small edge, you're, you're betting positive EV. Um, so, so give me a little bit of thought around that because it sounds like you guys are very disciplined, typical model bettors also but this idea of sort of angles that aren't fully vetted that, you know, have some logic behind them seem like they're predictive, but aren't necessarily something you're able to back test enough to know definitively, like, like almost like this, uh, you know, it's not the same as, as, as the Mayweather example, which I think is a great example, but generally like thinking about betting some of these things that make logical sense, but you can't vet from an analytical standpoint the way you would want to. I mean, I think it's like, especially because we're somewhere talking about the book here. The, the book is not about modeling. The book is, the, the book is about coming up with the, the core concepts. And the third part of the book that, you know, that you're referencing with the angles is ways that, that people can win or lose less without building a model. And I mean, but so I would challenge, so I would challenge this notion, right? This is like, this is like card counting without card counting. It's like, oh, okay, I, I saw a lot of twos, 
So, or I saw a lot of low cards recently. I haven't really been paying attention enough to know what the count is, but I think that there's a lot of big cards coming now. I'm going to bet more. Similarly to... That's called a, drunk card I, counting, by the way. So, so imagine, imagine you're, lazy, imagine you're in a single deck game. I think it's a great example. But now imagine you're, in a single, imagine you're in a single deck game with the best rules you can think of. And now there's a promotion that says... That, this is like a fantasy world that doesn't exist anymore. Well, well, well this is a hypothetical. Blackjack it does. In sports but, betting, it does exist. Sports yeah. betting, there are edges that are huge and can theoretically be found without knowing the exact how but i guess i just and, and again like i love the books but i want to challenge the notion of this angles thing just because i mean you even said it yourself the difference between an angle and a trend is very subtle and if i'm you know a shitty ass sports better prone to many cognitive biases i can create angles for anything that may or may not exist so here's an well, angle Here's an angle. Go ahead, Rufus. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Jeff on, the, on that point. And, and I think when you talk about there being a logical basis for it, I mean, I think we, we both, we've all seen the fact that you can kind of create narratives for anything. I mean, you could say this team has had 10 days off. They're well-rested. They should be good. They're, you know, that fits into some angle like with rest. Or you could say, oh, they're rusty. So you could literally make the logic go either <laughs> right. way. On, and there's so many things well, where you could to, do we're this. See with the Warriors, right? The Warriors are going to be go into – this finals with a ton of rest. So the question will be rust versus rust. So yeah, I don't know much about that. I was going to, the NBA example I was going to say was the home teams down 0-2. If you, if you looked at the mark, the first half to the game market with the home teams down 0-2, like the, the, yeah, they're the, completely uh, skewed now. Toronto the other night was like three and a quarter in the first half. And Rufus doesn't know what the NBA is. Less than, two, less than two in the game. Basically implying that if the first half were removed, mm-hmm. that if the first half were removed, the game would be about a pick. Right? You know, think about, you know, the, what the line, the pregame line is if the, if the Bucks are up three at halftime to make the game line two. So now that didn't, that didn't used to be the market. I remember years ago, you know, where, where certainly the openers, and it would get, they would get, the market would move that way. But even the, the closers, the first house were always less than the full game. And it was most certainly good. I think uh, I actually have data on this. I can look it up real quick. I, it's, it's something crazy, though. Uh, so this is. But the market's obviously changed there. Yeah, the, the market now believes in, the market believes in this. But 1999 so, so. to 2018, uh, teams down 0-2 have covered the game 54. percent The first half, 60, they're 89, 40, and four in the first half. And this is considering that the, the that the markets changed lately. You know, changed lately as well. Like the the average. Uh, See if I have it. it. Looks like the the average game three price is like fifty one percent in the money line for the, for the home team, and the average first half price. Feel like I have it's, it's I guess it's forty nine percent, fifty percent. So so what you're saying here though is that I mean it sounds like there is a fundamental effect. So the angle like isn't that the first? I mean the angle is that the team down o two is going to come out more motivated or whatever, and the they're going to make no, their last stand in the and first half. And so, so we should be able to say what we've like, is it going to be a difference of two points in relation or whatever? I mean, there's, you know, for me, I would say, okay, let's yeah, find out like, what this actual effect is and model it in rather than say, Oh, we can just blindly be betting 
this team in the first half. Um, because okay. at some point, I mean, there you can see when the market models, when the market starts modeling or accounting for it, because you can see what a first half should be relative to a full game. Like that's pretty easy to see. No, but, but so like a perfect, so a perfect example of this also is this idea over the last like three years, right? That the NBA has gone to the seven day uh, all-star break and that that first quarter, those first quarters of that, those games for those teams that have been off seven days have, have gone under. And I think they've gone under it like a pretty good clip, um, especially the first two years. That's a similar type of thing where there's just no way to necessarily backtest that enough or know enough to build that in a model. Well, here's how I would look at it. Here's how I would, that's a great, so I didn't know that until you just told me. But the first thing I would, I would do is I would say, okay, what are some similar type situations? And like in the, or opposite situations, in the NBA, there's a lot of data on back-to-back games. So if you, what is the opposite of a seven-day rest? A back-to-back game. So then you look at like a ton of sample. There's a ton of sample back-to-back games. And now it turns out that on back-to-back games, the first half is a little bit lower scoring than right. a first half with regular rest. So that would completely challenge the seven-day rest theory. This is like part- Ed's glide theory, which I kind of like, which is right. like the idea that like – and like maybe you could find a few times that there was like a three-game rest or something. Like the three-day rest, there's probably a few – times during the season where they have that and see if it glides like that and then if you look at the if you look at the the the, the angle i mentioned the you know to go back to rufus's point right now it's 89 and 40 if you waited for enough data i mean i'm guessing it's enough data but let's say you got onto this 10 years ago and 10 years ago it was you know there was half those samples well while others might wait for more data do more research the people that were betting that obviously made a lot of money in the meantime. Now, how to determine whether it's an angle or a trend? I mean, that's, that's the, 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 the science of it, I guess. And, you know, the difference between, you know, gathering data, thinking about it, thinking about it logically. And hopefully in the book, we steer people in the direction to be able to do that a little bit. For I mean, the, the, the last thing we want to do is to tell people, you know, go bet your gut instincts <laughs> into 5% old. I mean, obviously you're, gonna lose really badly if you do that and so i mean i i think the book is is i think the book really tries to steer you way away from that um and you know and and we did kind of walk a line because obviously what we do is modeling we build models i mean that's what that's what matt and i do every day i'm gonna after this podcast i'm gonna go sit and build a model you know that's what i'm working on a football stuff and you know we're definitely model oriented people and 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 we kind of you know said well how do we write a book that's you know teaches you useful interesting things about sports betting that doesn't say well you got to go build a model because honestly most people who read this book are not going to go build a model and so that's kind of you know the 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 tight rope we were trying to walk a little bit with and i mean i also agree with you guys i mean i certainly agree with rufus i mean you know about modeling versus angles and and what you're saying you know jeff about the i mean and yet at the same time the people that i know that have actually made tons and tons of money with much less of a model than i have these people are betting angles and this was honestly you know i don't think i would have even included the chapter but ed include the chapter and it certainly fits and 
it's I, I think it's one of the better chapters of the book as it turned out. Well, no, no, what, I, you're, I, what you're saying, what you're saying though, is basically that to be able to sort of identify these angles before anybody else, you need to be able to be sort of honing in on on what is driving it at a fundamental level, on a more granular level. And so if you're just doing it off of saying, oh, this is 89 and 40 against the spread, you're going to be late to the party. But if you can, what you're, I mean, I think you're making a really good point. If, if you can say, oh, well, we see that this effect is on a spectrum and we can, we witness it, um, we, you know, the whole glide factor, we witness it and, and these subset of games. So we'd expect it to be even stronger in this subset. So we actually, so I believe that there actually is something. For, I mean, for when some you, angles, you can even look across sports because yeah. some of the angles are based on, you know, human performance or, or, or things that will be common to, to humans, you know, in, in, in other sports. And, and That's a really good point. Another reason I know about angles and like, especially going over this NBA first half angle, a lot of times the bet you don't make is every bit as important as a bet you make. Let's say you knew you, you threw angles out. You have your first half to, to the game derivative chart. You see this. Well, this is a two-point game favorite. That's a three-point first half favorite. Well, let me take that three in the first half. And without, without the idea that an angle could be more important than all of your regular season data or something along those lines, you might not even think twice and just go firing in on your plus three first half, and you, you'd certainly be lacking some of the information. That's so, a good I point. Mean, so, I, I Jeff, the, first – okay, sorry. I think the more important part of this, right, and and Ed, I don't, I don't think your book's going to make people worse better. So don't, don't. That's not what what I was getting at. But what I was getting at is that um, I think the validation of angles, right, or the understanding or the process that you go through to have this be more than just some sort of confirmation bias, I think that's really important. And I, I do think you guys talk a lot about that, um, and it's an important thing to to sort of keep in mind in terms of as people look for these angles, like you know. You know, you hear stories about Haralabob, who I think we all believe was a pretty successful NBA better before he became uh, a, a corporate suit. He, um, that was a joke. On a crypto, a crypto advocate, right? Crypto, crypto advocate. But, you know, one of the things I know that, that he did a lot is he had theories around angles, specifically around the value of certain players and was able to sort of plug certain players in and out um, pretty well to understand effect of certain players and was really good as the NBA got to a point where they were letting, you know, where they were constantly like people sitting that he would kind of know the value of those guys a lot better than anyone else to the line, which is sort of a, an angle that people could play, but he had the wherewithal to be able to test that out from an analytics standpoint. Well, look at it this way. Harold is one of the most successful people, super, I mean, I can't say enough good things about Harold and he's in a, your example of, someone that has, you know, used angles. Yeah, agreed. And I, I agree with you about her, her Alibaba too. I was, I was teasing. <laughs> Before we sort of end this on angles, I kind of want to, I think this will sort of tie into a, a, another point. Um, and, and the big point is closing line values are really, is, is a really good way of seeing whether you're onto something, right? But you, should you, if you find some angle, would you expect to still be getting the same good closing line value as you do from having a good model? I, I mean, I mean, it really depends. I mean, it, it, for the best angle, I would say no. I mean, the, the isn't that kind of the point? You wouldn't want you right. would hope I mean, that you so, so the whole point is that so 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 the book is largely about price discovery and the market you know knows best, right? But you're saying if you find an angle, you found this like 
I don't know. The no, uni- but that's that's like saying Rufus. That's like like saying Moneyball is about on base percentage. The book is about like this process around right. trying to find value in sports betting and trying to you know every little piece of it. Like just that z- approach of using multiple outs to get to zero hold. I think is just such a powerful way of thinking about it. Like everyone's talked about price shopping before, but no one's ever put it in those terms where you're essentially giving yourself an opportunity of a 0% hold market. And, and I thought that was just a brilliant way of talking about it. So I agree. I just don't really know why you guys like Gilmore <laughs> so much. You guys are big Gilmore girls fans. That, that's it. I, I, you know, okay. I had, I had one other question and then maybe Rufus, you have another one, but um, my question comes from this idea of this again, like this sounds a little bit to me, like the difference between trends and, um, and angles. It's this idea of a mature market versus like an overly mature market. And so in there you talk about a market like, okay, I have a, you know, the, the Mayweather McGregor example is one of the greatest examples um, where I think all of us that know any professional bettors know that every professional better was on Mayweather in that fight. And they were trying to get as much money as they could on Mayweather, but no one felt, you know, no one really knew for sure. And this idea that the market, which is completely wrong, is such a rare thing. I think a similar example just happened in a mature market where the Warriors were like minus five, open minus 500 against the Blazers. Most professional bettors I know were trying to get on the Warriors minus 500, they thought that line was really, really skewed. It eventually, I think, moved to like minus 600. Um, how, do, how does this happen where these markets, and, and how do I, as a novice better, understand when a market is so mature that it might be wrong? The, the, I think the Super Bowl is the greatest, uh, is pretty pretty good example. You know, I pointed out that the, you know, the New Jersey lost a lot of the Super Bowl, and the reason that they did is that the public bet so much on on the Patriots. The line was, I'm sure, higher than it should have been. And that's the exact spot where, particularly after you number shop, making a bet on the Rams is, you know, certainly a good spot. Now, these don't come up often because we're really what you're talking about is this. Like, go back to the Mayweather, right? So the problem is that there's only no – no matter how sure you are you have an edge, that edge is – almost always finite, and it's forced you often don't know what it is. So you obviously cannot risk your entire bankroll on every edge, or you will most assuredly go broke. You have to choose, the, you have to choose a, a, a slice of your bankroll. And in a spot like the Super Bowl with the you know, Rams and the Patriots, the people that knew that there was a edge on the Rams, they could only wager so much money. I mean, if, if you're, even if you have a, let's say you have a, Betting fund, assuming these come in a couple of years, and let's say that that fund has a billion dollars in it. Well, if you determine, you know, your edge is three percent, how how much can you how much can you really wager? Thirty million? How much does that move the needle when everybody who is yeah, I mean, I'm, for- I'm less I'm less concerned about the money management around these opportunities. I'm more interested in understanding how I, as you know, uh, the novice better can recognize when I should respect the market versus not respecting the market. Right. I mean, essentially right. one of the big lessons that you make in the, in the book or you talk about is this idea of, of betting when you bet later into a market, when there's that much information in it, 
you know, like one of the things I love that you talk about, and Rufus and I talk about this, we've talked about this on podcasts, you bet something at minus seven, it goes down to minus four. I should like it more at minus four if my model liked it at minus seven, but you guys are saying, no, you shouldn't add more because there is, you know, there is something that's not in your model or the market knows more, et cetera. But in the case, again, of the Mayweather, uh, Mayweather-McGregor fight, you know, that, that, that model, that, that market was, was clearly wrong and was being supported by sort of like this public money or this like dumb money or whatnot. And that's what you're saying is similar in the Super Bowl. I think that's more of the exception. And I think that understanding that from the money making, from the money management standpoint is how to pick those spots off. Because if you can, if, if, if there are a lot of, if, if there are a lot of people or a lot of entities that know about a market and the market size is small, well, they can certainly, they can certainly bet enough to move the market to the right spot. Meanwhile, if the market is so big that, 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 that their correct money management bet can't move the needle to can't move the market until it's correct. Those are the spots. Yeah, I mean that that's that's the core I, the core right. idea is that is that the normal apparatus that keeps these markets moving, you know, is 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 it gets overwhelmed, you know, that temporarily overwhelmed. So so the and and that the by by an enormous amount of money coming in. So so it's it's really these ultra high volume markets are where you're going to see that more often, you know, and in, in in everyday markets and everyday you know and everyday. MLB game or NBA game or, or, you know, college basketball game, these markets are all small enough. The total volume of the market is small enough that, you know, if these numbers get off out of whack, there's always plenty of money sitting around to, to, you know, to, to pick up value and move the, move the market back. And that's what makes the market work efficiently. When the market volume gets so large, you know, it, at some point it, it, it reaches past a breaking point where the normal, you know, people that keep these markets in line can't keep up. And that's when you're going to see it. So it, it, it's, I think it's purely, a, I think the main effect is a market volume, you know, effect. So amount of volume coming from recreational betters. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So well, the, the, the key difference between sports betting and financial markets is that sports betting is the, at the core entertainment. If you don't have people betting the stock market because they want to root for a company. You certainly have people betting on sports teams because they want to root for a team. And that makes sports markets inherently different, inherently less uh, correct than financial markets. So, so what do you think of this whole concept of, of um, I mean, it's become this sort of fad, I guess, looking at bet percentages and the amount of money on a team versus the amount number of bets on a team and, and being able to sort of use that to try to see if the market is out of whack. Um, the fading, the fading, the public thing. Um, so, so I, so I've seen a little bit of this. I, I do know what you're talking about. I, I don't know the extent of it. Um, but you know, in, in the book, we draw a distinction between market making sports books and retail sports books, you know, and I, and again, this is not a bright line distinction that there, there are sports books that can and do operate, you know, between the two on a continuum, but but the type of information that you're talking about, bet, bet volume, bet count, if, if a market-making book published their information about, you know, how much money they had on each side and how, how many tickets they wrote, and, I mean, if they told you so-and-so bet this and such-and-such bet that, I mean, that, that information would be incredibly valuable, you know, potentially. 
Um, but, but I haven't seen too many market making books publishing that information. Mostly I see it, it from, from more retail oriented sports books and, and those retail oriented sports books don't, don't do a lot of price discovery. In other words, their, their lines tend to be pegged to the market makers lines. So, so what you have is you have this information that's, that's interesting, but I don't think it's very useful to help you find, you know, a good bet because the line is set at a completely separate organization. So why would they want to give, so I guess, why would they want to give that information out if it did have value, right? The, the retail right, I mean, don't, don't believe it has value, right? Right, exactly. I mean, they, they, they think it drives interest, but they don't think it actually has value in terms of um, finding a good bet. Otherwise, I mean, they wouldn't want to give it out. They're doing it for marketing purposes, right? right? They're just like, to this, this so another secret here, another secret here is this. The, think about anybody listening to this who has, who, anyone trying to win, what's the first thing you think of? You think about someone trying to win betting sports. You take the best price. You have a lot of choices and you bet the best price is fairly obvious. Now, what you see when you look at only one book's data, especially if you look at the sharp data, let's say you have a book that has 20 accounts that they know is sharp and 2000 accounts that aren't sharp, right? So let's say that they, that they give you the data on who their sharps played. Let's say that they have six, bet, all, six sharp bets that are all on one side of the game. So oh, that must be the right side, right? Well, not necessarily. It could be that just during one hour or one half an hour, the guy who's in charge of the line moved the line, didn't move the line. Let's say they had the best price in the world on that side for, well, that's that's what the Sharps do. The Sharps take the best price. So the reason that if they never had the best price on the opposite side, that's possibly why they didn't take any, take any bets on that side, having nothing to do with the overall, like if you actually told the 20 people the account is the – which side was better at the market median? It might be 14 to six, but the only six bets that the book saw were the bets from the other side because that's the side they happen to have the best price on at a time. Anything, you else, you, anything else you guys want to say about the book? I think you all should buy it. It's good. It's only $9.99 on Kindle and it's $19.99 on paperback. It just came out and I think it's really good. And even more than buying it, tell people about it. I mean, we, obviously, everyone likes to make a couple of bucks, but... Yeah, well, we have some of the sports betting book for nine ninety nine because we're you know right, we're up not, all of our six dollars sales. Here. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I mean, our goal for the book again, I, I, a big part of the reason why we wrote the book is because we feel like we feel like kind of getting some of this information out there is going to help a lot of the people that are invested in this industry. You know, people who people who bet for a living. Honestly, if you bet for a living, telling people about what's in this book is not going to hurt you. It's only going to help you because it's going to help the industry become more robust and it's going to ensure that honestly you have more ability to use your talents down the road. And that's to, my opinion. To make a poker comparison, like, I mean, I know Ed wrote some great poker books and most of those books cause people to say, get good enough to move up from the three, six game, the four eight game to like a mid or a high stakes game. Meanwhile, that's exactly what the people, the professionals should want. They want people moving up and moving in their games. They're not, they're not competing with the, with the three, six players. And, you know, that's a, a, another reason for the, you know, the APs yeah. out there that and I've been asked, why did you write a book? I hope you didn't give out, you know, the, 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 you know, the secrets. And I mean, to me, education is, is good for almost everybody in the industry, ex, except for a very, very small proportion. And most of the people that think it's not good for them, it probably is. 
I mean, I, I really hope that a lot of the media people read it and that that's like, and even some of the, like these quote unquote professional betters that talk on that we hear talk, you know, these, these experts that we hear talking on major media that really don't know how a lot of this stuff works. Um, I hope they read it. And I, I think it's an amazing book guys. I, I really think you guys did a great, great job on it and I'll be buying it and giving it to lots of people. So um, I think I need some sort of referral code so I can get some sort of money back. Can that. we just give it away to like all the media members? Like anybody tweeting out that what the market is on where Antonio Brown is going to be traded to should read this book. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks for the time. Oh, wait. So uh, before you go, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about your company, uh, Deck Prison? Sure. So, so the, the, the main thing we're doing is, is not writing books. The main thing we're doing is we're launching a company called Deck Prism Sports. Uh, and it's going to be a B2B in-play odds provider. So basically, we have uh, in-play models for all the major American sports. Um, and if you bet in-play, you know, and, and we, again, we talk about this in the book, but the in-play betting experience in the U.S. is, is not the best at the moment. And part of the reason it's not the best is because sportsbooks don't have uh, the, a lot of the products that they use. They, they basically buy lines feeds from third-party companies, and they don't trust the lines feeds, so they do things like lower the limits, and they put long delays on them, and they make it so that it's really hard to actually get down on these the in-play feeds. And, we're, and we're, we're trying to solve that problem. So we're, we're trying to make reliable you know, in play lines on American sports for sports books to deal. And it's, you know, the best lines that we can make with available information. But, you know, I mean, if you think you're smarter than us, you could definitely beat our lines, I'm sure. So, you know, that that's, but that's, that's what our company is. So, um, and, uh, so the product launches in the fall. And I mean, even though it is inherently a B2B company, we are planning for, I mean, maybe a long, long time to publish all of our odds for free on deckprismsports.com. Yeah. Starting with preseason NFL football, where everybody, I'm sure, wants to see. What, you want to you want to know who to bet on in the middle of the third quarter of the preseason football? The preseason football games. I'm I'm a hundred percent sure you will not find a better line than <laughs> deckprismsports.com. If you can figure out preseason NFL live betting, you know, football, like that's impressive. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for the time. Again, book is amazing. It's called The Logic of Sports Betting, available on Amazon, Kindle, I assume, all those different places. Yep. And we'll we'll put it when we put this out. We'll put a link to it in the in the tweet um, where Rufus has more followers than I did that he, he likes to brag about it. So we have yeah, a so, so go, go to Logic. Sign. Make sure to buy it at Logic. Uh, wait, logicofsportsbetting.com slash bet the process and enter the referral. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> That's R O C E S S in the promo code. Do you know how many people are gonna? So many people are gonna be like, the link didn't work. <laughs> you mean you mean the the portion of the twelve people that listen to this podcast? Yeah, yeah. Saying that. So, all right, guys, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. So that was Matt Davidow and Ed Miller. Um, and it was, it was, they're very interesting. I, I wasn't uh, just pandering to them. I really did enjoy that book. I read it in, you know, literally like 12 hours of running around my house off of my phone. So um, I enjoyed it. And 
I mean, what, what were the general, what were your general thoughts, Rufus? Was there anything that, that stuck out on you? On the book or the interview? Because I, I, I agree that it was also fantastic. And, and I don't, I haven't read a ton of I think of you and I liked books, it for different honest. reasons. I think you and I liked it for different reasons, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I think so too. The parts that you sort of gravitated towards, I think were around, that's more around the business of, of bookmaking. And the parts that I gravitated towards were much more around the approaches to, to you know, like to, because I, I think that you have your approach that you believe works really well for you in sports betting. And, and, and obviously it does work really well. I don't, I don't mean to say that it doesn't work well. And so the, those, I think that I've, I've always like been interested in other people's approaches. Um, and specifically like, I, I, you know, one of the people that I, that I thought a lot about as I was reading that book was our friend Preston because Preston does definitely look more at like derivative markets and he's looking, he, he really is much more around, you know, finding these great outs and, and, and whatnot. Um, and even just these sort of playing some angles from time to time, I don't think he plays them the same as he does something that he feels like he has real, you know, mathematical value on. Do you, does that angle thing, does that sit, does that sit poorly with you? I think, I feel no. like it still does. No, no, no. I, I, th- I thought that the way they explained it was good. And, and I still think that, I mean, I probably use angles in my handicapping. I just don't really, it's just done in sort of, it's embedded in the code. But one of the things that they were doing, right, is they wrote this book for people that couldn't create a model, right? Which is like, I think one of the hardest things to do because you're essentially saying like, oh, it's okay to be lazy and take the shortcut and here's how you do it in a way that's not too destructive for you, which I, I applaud them for trying to do, but I also think is, is almost impossible. Well, Jeff, I think it's, it's for, I think the book is useful for anybody, whether or not you're building a model or, or, or not. I mean, a recreational better if they understand the idea of sort of creating a synth, like a synthetic hold, I did air quotes, meaning if, you know, if one place, if a normal market is, you know, minus 128, plus 118 for a baseball game and you see that one book has minus another one book you have has minus 125 and another has plus 122 then you literally have a market with a very small like less than one percent i think hold and so you're i think just that idea right there i mean you don't need to be creating a model like that's going to save you money if you if you are doing that yeah but i i do think i do challenge them about the notion that this book is for mainstream because oh, I think it totally is for mainstream. I, at least, I think so the, I, I the think part that I like be. about it, right. The I think, part that I, think, I am, I, think I gravitated towards. I think it could be, but I also feel like it is, it is so smart in how it talks about things that there, a lot of mainstream people are not going to get the value out of it that other people would. But I think the the fact the explanations are so good that it, it, it makes it more no, relatable. Like, like the black Friday elegant. example. But you have a really good example of price discovery. You have to be somewhat smart to get something out of this book because I don't think a dumb person can read this book and sort of really, but then again, dumb people don't really read. So we're, can we, can we find a dumb person to give it to and see if they actually get anything out of it? I have have one in mind, but I won't say his name. (laughs) I have no idea who you're talking about actually. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Oh, Vegas Dave. (laughs) No, no, we're not going to name names. Let's move on. Um, People are going to probably go on Twitter and talk about it. Let's do you want to no, talk no, about but, the- but I agree that I, I agree that I think we gravitated toward different parts. I liked the, the sort of, I, I think I, I liked the sort of concepts explained like the price discovery and talking about market resistance and, and just why some markets are, are 
sharper than others and, and, and that kind of thing. And I think that is useful. I think for anybody in the industry, I think, well, I, I'm not I really do think not, media people should be reading not, this. I'm not saying it's not useful. What I'm saying is it's, it's not as accessible as um, like when they first, you know, there's still just general concepts of sports betting that they don't explain in the book and nor would I want them to right? I wouldn't want to read it if I had to read about what some of these general, like really elementary concepts are, but without like those concepts of those elementary concepts, getting into this idea of a synthetic hold or, or, you know, 0% hold, which, I mean, they do a good job having the building blocks um, for the, everything they write about. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, they we'll talk see. about what a hold is though. I mean, they, the over round and, and again, Okay. I just I just think that sometimes people forget how dumb other people are. That's fair. People like Matthew and 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 Ed. It's like the average you know guy. I think this will elevate. I'm not saying that this isn't a wonderful book and this won't elevate the conversation. I just don't think this is going to elevate the conversation for about fifty percent of this people who bet sports. That's fair. Um, so and and I think and I mean you you read it with more of an eye towards helping out a better. Like, like to, 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 I, yeah, no, and I, I think I read it as, I read it as I'm always reading, I'm always thinking about the media coverage of sports from the standpoint of like the lowest common denominator sports better and how would they read this and what would they get from this? And I feel like a lot of this would go way over their heads, even though I do think they did a good job trying to make this as simple as com- and conversational as possible. So would you say in a way that their book is, is more like our podcast and that we're not trying to appeal yeah, to the lowest it's common totally, denominator? It's totally the same. It's the same, you know, and it's not, it's, I, I think it's similar in, in exactly why we do this podcast too. We're just trying to elevate the whole conversation around sports betting um, by doing it in a different way. And I think sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't. And, and I think there is a lot of similarities, but I do think that, you know, you'll see the reviews on, on iTunes. There are people that hate our podcast. There are people that gave it like one star reviews, but you know, it's, and, and it's because it's not for everyone. And this book I think is more accessible than our podcast, but I do think there are, there are pieces of it that would be challenging. So fair enough. And, uh, did you want to talk about the PGA and Tommy Fleetwood's wonderful oh, Sunday? Man. How much man, money did oh, that man. cost you? That uh, cost you a lot of money. We were sitting so pretty after the first two days. I had, yeah. I think, five or six matchups on Fleetwood. Um, by far, my lose, biggest you, position. You probably only won one of your Fleetwood matchups. Is my I guess. think Fleetwood oh, against Molinari pushed. Yeah, and then you probably won Ram. And I won against Ram, I think. Yeah, yeah. Ram. Wrong. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I think Sunday might have been one of the worst gambling days in my life in terms of just the swing. Like, because so my 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 tournament matchups um, went sixteen and eight. The ones that were decided on Friday evening, the ones decided at the cut were, were sixteen and eight. So, and and the round bets, like round one, three balls were went were like did incredibly well. They returned like I had a lot of volume. They returned like thirty five percent, so way above expectation. And then. And then anyway, I think I went, um, the remaining matchup bets were about even in terms of um, strokes up or down overall. I think it was maybe a total of like 16 matchups or so. It was down five strokes, I think. And it ended up, um, let's see, loss, 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 one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, four and 13 and one. On Sunday, game on, on the ones Sunday. decided on Sunday. Yeah, like I was on for example. Yeah, like did you did Lowry you re- making the cut on the number 
birdieing 17 to make the cut on the number. I had two matchups against him, and then he had really good round three and round four. Um, so I lost those matchups. I was I had some anti uh, Xander Shalfley. Um, I had some like um, let's see. Oh yeah, well Fleetwood itself, like Fleetwood lost like three matches or four matches himself on on Sunday itself. So yeah, yeah. That, I mean that was that, that was, was a big that one. was enough because I had tailed you on some of the Fleetwood stuff. Oh, hey, I had so- Hao Tong Lee against Thomas Peters, and Hao Tong Lee went f- four over on his last three holes to lose. He double bogeyed the final one, so that lost by like. Did and he you, was, Yeah. Did you did you bet any of the non uh, Kepka to win? Who who to win? That was non Kepka. There was. I did. Chris was offering that. I did. I also bet on Kepka to win by on? one or uh, so. I, I had a bunch of them there. I mean, none of them did well. I think I had some like Howell and some. I thought um, you would have taken DJ there because DJ's pre pre turning odds were so good. And he was still like plus one sixty or something like that. Was this on? This was on. This Saturday, is going Saturday going, going into Sunday. Saturday night. I can you actually get like plus one sixty on DJ to, to be the the number one non Kepka um, guy. So yeah, I. I mean, I think he was he was priced pretty low there, though. I mean, I I kind of liked the guys that were sort of lesser. I mean, I don't know more of the consistent guys that aren't great major performance necessarily. Um, I thought they were a little mispriced. I think DJ was what, like priced at six to one, maybe. No, 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 no. This is to to win the tournament to be the top non Kepka. Right, right. Wasn't he priced at like six to one or something? No, he was plus one sixty. How six to one? It would have been amazing. Oh, so he was plus one. Oh, yeah, he was plus one sixty. There wasn't value there. I had him at like plus one ninety five or something. I think. Got it. Got um, it. But I, but but they also had a market on on um, the odds. Well margin of victory by Kepka and I thought that the that I, I found some very good value on Kepka to win by three and then also win by one or two strokes and that ended up coming in I think the market thought that he was going to be kind of you know pulling away and it didn't happen I mean I just thought that there you know you had enough people chasing that one person has to have a good rat like one you know one person has to of the like five that were within eight strokes just had to have a low round relative to the field. And that's basically what DJ did, even though he didn't go low, the conditions were so tough that, yeah. By the way, did you, did you see how tough those conditions were and, and, and the differences in, in scoring between the different I mean, the, just the wind, the wind just got ridiculous. And I saw DJ like hitting six iron short and then hitting like eight iron long. And it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. It was like a difference of two strokes um, from being like a later tee time to an earlier tee time on Sunday. And, but the funny thing yeah, is when I actually not modeled correctly, no, I, I don't think so. Given the fact that the forecast wasn't um, for quite that extreme a, a difference. I mean, if you look at the actual weather, um, if you look at the weather on the course, the, the court, the readings on the course, yeah, it picked up from like, you know, 11 or 12 to like 25 uh, plus there are the gusts. But if I, if you look at like, I was on weather underground and looked at the nearest, like the, the best, you know, weather history I could get was, long island airport or something which is like 15 miles away maybe and there it literally showed that it, it didn't show nearly as a, a big a difference between the afternoon and the morning it, it, and so i think and if you also if you looked at thursday and friday i think everybody was saying before that the late thursday early friday tea times would be have the weather advantage over the early to late and i actually found i based on my model i had early late being a slight um, advantage, but it ended up being a, a difference of of two strokes or something because the wind just 
literally died Friday afternoon. It went down to like zero at one point, like 3 p.m. And, and, but, but the thing is, the forecast um, was not for it to be completely, like it was the forecast was it for it to still be you know, 11 or 12 miles an hour Friday afternoon. At least this is the forecast like Wednesday, I think. And so I think it just goes to show how hard it is to actually be able to, to, to predict those effects. And, and, you know, you can know in general what the weather is going to do, but sometimes the wind will shut off for an hour or, um, and, or maybe this front will come in a little bit later than anticipated and that'll, you know, wreak havoc on your forecasts. Yep. So baseball hasn't turned around for you? I haven't even looked in the last week. I'm, so I'm not sure. I, as I said, we've had this conversation before. When, when, when things, when I'm not doing well on something, I tend I think to you not should look. follow I it. bet you did well over the weekend because the Marlins swept the Mets, and they were like value, I think, in all three games. Well, my trader did text me with Marlins exclamation mark once, so that was good, I think. Yeah, so I think you're doing all right. It might be time to check. Maybe. I mean, I don't. I, it's, uh, you know, I, I personally am liking living life without looking at baseball. It frees up time. <laughs> You love baseball, though, so it's sad that you've lost your love of baseball. Well, I, I want to actually ha- get some time to overhaul my model in a way that is long overdue, but cool. now is not the time. All right. I think that's good for this week. Uh, hopefully, you guys like this interview. Hopefully, you go out and read the book, and we'll talk to you again in a couple more weeks. We'll work on a new guest for two weeks from now. Please let us know any suggestions you have. Analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a leaded.